Okay, hello and welcome back to the Quacked Out podcast. Uh, you guys are hearing me a little sooner than you may have expected. Um, after our normal Utah preview with Charlie, we decided to do same thing we did a few weeks ago for the big UCLA matchup, bring on a, a special guest again from our favorite Pac-12 podcast, No Truck Stops. Uh, this time we're welcoming in Utah fan Greg. Uh, how you doing, Greg? I'm doing good, Reed. How are you? Doing pretty good. Uh, I would be uh, remiss if I didn't mention that you have a bit of a cult following on Oregon Twitter, I think, amongst the No Truck Stops pod members, because I think your Oregon takes are probably the most favorable of the group. Um, and well, so we, we appreciate you out here. I do have to say, uh, Matt said before the season that Oregon was going to go to the playoff and uh, I called him crazy but <laughs> since then I think I have been a little bit more favorable than the rest of them <laughs> yeah that's true we we like Matt as well and I like both of you because you're Red Sox fans also um, yeah some of the Sox. listeners may not share that, <laughs> share that. Um, all right what do you say we just dive right in so obviously big matchup um, on the Oregon side it's people are talking about the playoffs is the big thing ranked number three um, but what's what's the feeling around the Utah fan base right now? Um, just kind of in general, you know, we don't get to interact with a ton of Utah fans uh, in Oregon maybe as much, and y'all are kind of a newer addition to the conference as well. Not super new, but uh, not quite as mm-hmm. deep roots, I guess, between the fan bases. Um, what's the feeling at Utah right now? What is the experience like with Whittingham as your head coach? Kind of, how do you feel about the direction of the program based on what this season has been? So, like, for me, I'm not sure. I'm sure there are a lot of Utah fans that are a little more optimistic about the program in general. But uh, I think this year and next year are Utah's, like, best and only chances to win the Pac-12 for a long time because uh, I I think USC is going to get better. Like, maybe they fuck mm-hmm. up the hire again, but... I think I think they're going to make the right decision, and I also think Oregon is going to keep getting better. And so, even if we win the South, winning the North is only going to get harder. Uh, where at the same time, Utah's roster right now is the most talented in terms of just recruiting that it's ever been. And mm-hmm. uh, next year, even if USC brings in a new coach, there's so much more wrong with that than just Clay Helton being a bad coach this year. You know, like they have massive holes in the roster that need to be filled and uh the culture is just usc has so much wrong with it that i do think utah can be better next year not just this year so i think like the next two years we have a very real chance at getting a pac-12 championship but after that it gets a lot dicier so i'm uh you know i'm hopeful for this these (laughs) next two years but I don't feel I don't feel great about our chances. I think it's more likely we just lose two more Pac-12 championship games to whoever comes out of the North, probably Oregon. But <laughs> at the same time, Oregon this year is beatable. Like they're definitely beatable in my eyes. Uh, yeah. I think they're significantly worse than 2019 Oregon was. And I don't know. Is that a controversial take among Duck fans? Um, I think that. Well, I would say from a roster perspective, you're probably right. Um, people agree with that. I mean, especially having Herbert and all of that is, is a big bonus for mm-hmm. 2019. Um, but I think the 
kind of other part of it for Oregon fans is we really did not like Arroyo, the offensive coordinator, during yeah, that time. Yeah. And we have a lot of faith in Moorhead, on the other hand. So I think that mm-hmm. kind of is the balancing act between the two. I think both rosters are pretty talented throughout. Obviously, 19 has a big advantage at quarterback, and I think our fans would say offensive coordinator is a huge advantage for the 2021 team. Um, but I, I, I'm fine yeah. with that take, that, that 19 is better. Yeah, I would, I would agree with you. that I think this team is coached better, at the very least, on the offensive side of the ball. I'm not... I'm not sure how I feel about Deruder right now as Oregon's DC. I thought he did a great job at Cal, but you know, I think Oregon's defense this year has maybe left a little bit to be desired. Uh, mm-hmm. So I don't know if it's an upgrade there, but at the very least, I don't think it's a big downgrade in terms of defensive coaching. I think the big thing is you know Herbert miles better than Anthony Brown, and uh, that 2019 Oregon offensive line is maybe the best I've ever seen in college. Like, just absolutely incredible. If anyone, you know, like, if there was a left tackle I'd want to be blocking against Kayvon Thibodeau, it would be Penny Sewell, you know? He's <laughs> yeah, just... I can agree with you there. Mm-hmm. But, uh, um, you know, so, like, I think this Oregon team is beatable, and so Utah, like, Utah has a very real shot about uh, at w- winning the Pac-12 this year. And uh, another reason I'm so desperate for us to get it this year and next year is because I'm I think lower on Utah as a program than most Utah fans are uh it's in awesome shape but I think uh there's a ceiling here you know that USC doesn't have Oregon doesn't have like I think Utah's probably the fourth best job in the Pac-12 South if I were a coach I think I'd rather Mm -hmm. I'd definitely rather coach at the LA schools and I think yeah. I'd rather coach at ASU, but it's a little closer yeah. there. Um, depends on, you know, what the athletic department's like and, you know, sanctions. But um, uh, I'm really high on Whittingham because of, you know, how low I am on Utah as a program. I think Whittingham <laughs> is about as good as we could expect a coach here to be. You know, he's yeah he just tied against Arizona. He tied our all-time winningest coach, so... If we beat Oregon, he passes us. He passes it then and breaks the record. Or if we win the next week, he passes it and breaks the record. Um, but you know, I'm scared of a post-Winningham world, which is coming soon. Uh, you know, I think. Yeah, how long? I think he's going to hang it up. He has, has left there. Whittingham is not one of those coaches in my eyes who is like addicted to football. You know, like there mm-hmm. are coaches who uh, who can't quit it, like Urban Meyer. You know. Like, he retires and then unretires all the time. Whittingham has said for a long time he wants to retire, like, when he's 60. And I, I can't remember how old he is. I don't know why I've forgotten it. But I think he's, like, 62 right now. And uh, he seems a little bit – oh, he's 61 right now. But um, he's about to turn 62. Yeah. He just seems a little less energetic than uh, he once was. And uh, I got toasted by Utah fans earlier in the season, both me and Matt did, uh, for speculating about that early in the season. And, you know, it's understandable why he's been a little bit less, I don't know, fiery this year, considering the fact that he's had two players in his program die. You know, he, he said it. This is by far the hardest year of his coaching career, and it makes sense. It's been an incredibly difficult situation. But, um... 
I think he's going to be hanging it up in a few years. Like if I had to place a bet, I'd bet on him. I'd bet on next year being his last year. Uh, wow. And so, yeah, it's just he doesn't. I think he is uh, a much healthier person than your average football coach. Yeah. And so yeah, he sees sense. he's made a lot of money. He can enjoy that and his family without all the stress that comes with being a college football coach. And I think that is something he wants. And, uh, yeah. yeah, I could definitely be wrong, though, because obviously I don't know Whittingham, you know. But right. with Whittingham, while we've had him, we've punched above where I think our weight class is as a program. And so I'm scared of the post-Whittingham world. Although when he does hang it up, I don't want to hire a Whittingham guy, you know. Mm-hmm. I'd much rather go outside of the program and specifically an offensive-minded head coach. I'm a, I'm scared of defensive coordinators as head coaches, which is funny because, you know, Whittingham is as defensive as they get as a head coach. But, like, you look at uh, what happened with UW and Jimmy Lake, you know, right. I don't want that to happen with Utah. Um, so, yeah, in yeah. terms of that, uh, I'm, I feel good about where Utah is as a program, like, my expectations weren't for us to be any better, and so I'm happy with it. As far as, like, this season, for me, it's it's conference championship or bust. Like, at this point, we've done, like, we've won the South multiple times now, and it's just, it's, it's old news, you know? We've been there, done that. Does nothing mm-hmm. for us as a program, really, that we haven't yeah. already done. And uh, I have zero interest in a Rose Bowl appearance that comes off the back of a conference title game loss because I just... Utah has made BCS slash New Year's six games before. We've won two of them. Like, we were the first group of five team to make a BCS game and subsequently win it. Uh, So we've been there before. Like, it's not like we haven't won a game like that before, and while a Rose Bowl would feel more special to me than those would. I think the Rose Bowl is the best of the uh, the New Year's Six games. Yeah, we would agree. A Rose Bowl appearance a Rose Bowl appearance against a team that's probably better than Utah is with no confer- like with us not having a conference championship just feels empty, whereas like winning the Pac twelve I think would be the biggest accomplishment in program history. Like yeah. the undefeated Utah teams when we were in the Mountain West were great, and they actually had a lot of NFL talent on them. But uh, a full Power Five schedule is just a different kind of grind, you know. Right. It's so right. much harder, and to go through one of those and come out on top would be just massive. And then, of course, that guarantees a Rose Bowl appearance, which would mean right. so much more to me than it would if I felt like we, you know, failed our way into it. And right. so. Uh, Conference title or bust this year, although I don't think we're going to do it. Like, I think we'll end yeah. up losing to Oregon probably twice, but <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, I think Oregon fans could probably relate to that feeling of, of failing into it if they're really honest with themselves. I know some might not agree with me, but obviously last year Oregon gets to the Fiesta Bowl, um, but they kind of do it in, in a very weird season. Um, where they mm-hmm. do get to play in a conference championship, but everything that happened with the North uh, and all of that, we don't need to relitigate. But it certainly felt like a bit of a yeah. hollow New Year's Six Bowl in comparison to the 2019 Rose Bowl, for instance. Um, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's I, that take was super interesting to me, but it made a lot of sense uh, when you said, you know, how much more a Pac-12 title would mean for Utah, especially because your guys' history was in the in the G5 before this, and now you know you haven't gotten to the top of a P5 conference yet, uh, and doing that yeah. would be a, a pretty big statement for the program. I think something that a lot of Utah fans have done, at least I've done this, uh, is uh, compared ourselves with TCU. Um, yeah. You know, TCU went to the Big 12 around this. I think it was the same time. Yeah, it was the same time Utah mm-hmm. went to the Pac-12. Uh, TCU has a conference title. Like, it's a shared conference title, but they have one. And it kind of bothers me that uh, they did it and we didn't. And, you know, on the one hand, Utah's a much better program right now than TCU is, I think. I think that's safe to say. But yeah. on the other hand, uh, I still hate TCU. <laughs> like, yeah. I still remember the Mountain West days where that game, it was like winner of Utah-TCU almost every single year won the Mountain West. And the winner of the Mountain West for a while there was going to a, uh, was going to a BCS game. And... Right. Uh, those games had a lot at stake, so I still compare ourselves to them, and it bothers me that they have something we don't. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and interestingly, obviously, they just moved on from their longtime mm-hmm. coach, Gary Patterson. Um, all right, let's transition kind of more into into this Utah team and, and this season. Um, so obviously, Utah's season's kind of started out a bit slow um, for a variety of reasons. Obviously, the tragic news off the field um but also you know starting with brewer at qb really hurt them on the field as as well it felt like um and so early losses to byu and san diego state um kind of just from a a you know bird's eye view perspective really kind of slant the record of this team because it's at seven and three and and that doesn't look great just on paper um how much do you kind of still hold worries about this team from their performances versus BYU and San Diego State? Uh, or do you feel like it's just a totally different group now? You know, it's it's very confusing. And, like, I feel like I catch myself uh, in uh, logical inconsistencies in the way I think about it sometimes. But uh, overall, I think that uh, using things that happened in the first three weeks of the season – just overall don't make a ton of sense compared to this team because I do think it's changed so much like mm-hmm. uh, we lo- uh, this is just not the same team that lost to BYU and San Diego State when Rising came into the San Diego State game it just completely changed the offense like he came down late in the game down two touchdowns and the game went to triple overtime and we lost basically because our kicker had the worst game of his career right. uh, it was so bad but uh, like you know if he'd gone in earlier in that game or if the kicker had made one of the kicks that he missed we'd have won uh and then a few weeks later like i think it was uh three weeks including the bye after that uh they figured out an offensive line combination that worked because in the first Mm -hmm. few weeks of the season especially when brewer was in the offensive line was one of the worst lines i've ever seen it was just like blitz if a team blitzed, they would have at least one free rusher every single time, and that's why we lost to BYU. 
because right. Brewer didn't have legs and BYU had a linebacker coming up the middle every single play and there's just nothing we could do. Um, right. But, you know, offensive line, basically it was bad against Washington State, but since the bye week, the offensive line has been, like, really good. It's living up to the offseason hype that it had and I never bought into the hype because I'm damaged. I've seen too many bad <laughs> Utah offensive lines to, you know, believe, but... It's mm-hmm. finally starting to like sort of win me over, and you know if it performs well against Oregon, I'll be totally sold because obviously that's the biggest test Utah's gonna face. But um, the offensive line and quarterback, basically, I think you know maybe the two most important positions in the sport have totally changed from what they were with those early losses, and so I think you can say safely it's a different team. But then again. This team did lose to Oregon State, you know, and right. uh, it's just it it's it's a very confusing team because every time I think I figure them out, they do something that just absolutely baffles me. Like that Arizona State win was huge and awesome and so impressive, and then Oregon State, where like, oh man, it was the it was the worst. Uh, uh, let's see. How do I put this? It was the most rushing yards Utah's given up in the Whittingham era to anyone. Yeah. Which was, you know, like I get Oregon State has a nice rushing offense, but like I don't care. That's still sad. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, with this team, it's just like it's not what a Utah team usually is. This right. team's best aspect by far is its offense. Uh, the The rush defense is the worst it's been in the Whittingham era. The defensive line is talented, but it's also younger than any D-line we've had ever. Uh, and the secondary is the same way. It's talented, most more talented in terms of recruiting rankings than any we've had, although I'd say 2019 was better. All those guys got drafted. But um, Utah this year starts by far the most true freshman in the Pac-12, I think. Hmm. coming like The gap between them and number two was gigantic. I can't remember what the exact number was. But uh, in terms of starts made by true freshmen, Utah was number one in the Pac-12, and I think at least top ten nationally, if not top five. Like they're yeah. just starting an absurd amount of young guys. Is and that those young is guys that are good? Including the uh, COVID true freshmen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you yeah. just change that to like redshirt freshmen or whatever, right. I think it would still be the same because the entire defense basically <laughs> is freshmen. Uh, right. Yeah. The entire secondary, I think, actually is. Uh, everybody who's starting except for Vontae Davis, who's a senior. Uh, but it's just such a young defense that it's it's softer than a Utah defense normally is, although it is still good at defending against the pass. Uh, the big strength of the defense is the linebackers. Devin Lloyd, I think, is... I mean, he's a top three, maybe, defensive player to play at Utah. And that's saying something. Utah's had a lot of really great defenders, but he's just absolutely incredible. He makes this defense work, you know. And right. uh, on the other side, Nephi Sewell is also really, really good, and y'all know how good Sewells can be. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> PFF, and you know, you got to take PFF with a grain of salt because they come up with some <laughs> wild grades. But uh, mm-hmm. they have. Lloyd is, like, by far the highest-graded linebacker in the Pac-12, and then, like, a 12-point gap between him and next. And I think Sewell is, like, fourth in the Pac-12. 
Like Utah's linebackers are really good, and they're like they're what holds the defense together. Uh, and then offensively, Rising has uh, <laughs> he's transformed the offense uh, coming into the year, going from Jake Bentley last year, who was, I mean. I don't know if y'all Oregon fans watched Utah last year, but that offense was terrible. Outside of Ty Jordan, it was mm-hmm. it did nothing. And uh, coming into this year with Charlie Brewer, Andy Ludwig was basically playing with the Jake Bentley playbook, which uh, does not make for effective offense. And uh, in Cam Rising's first game against Wazoo, in his first start, I should say, I think we were still playing with that playbook, but against USC, we we realized, hey, this quarterback, like, he's not a statue. He can move. He's got right. an arm. Right. And so uh, the offense has gotten a lot better, and its team is still built on the run game. Like, at one point after the Stanford game, I think even before the Stanford game, uh, Utah was leading the country in yards per carry. But uh, I think the run game is so successful because teams finally can't sell out to stop the run because Rising will beat them. And so it's just the most confusing Utah team of my lifetime. Uh, <laughs> and I really still don't know what they are. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, you mentioned the Arizona State and Oregon State games. Those, those are the two that kind of stood out most to me and, and the two that I – watched closest probably as well um for those Oregon fans who maybe need a refresher on those games or something uh, I'll, I'll tell you what I thought saw from them and you can kind of correct me if you want to um but in the ASU game it seemed like uh going into that game ASU's you know seen as a top 20 or top 15 team even at the time really um and Utah kind of struggles out of the gate they're down two scores at half um, and then you guys come out in the second half and, and play pretty much your best half of the season. I think it's fair to say 28 straight at home uh, in what was a huge statement game in the South. Um, and then the Oregon State game the next week uh, was was the other big test, I think. Um, they've been really good at home while they've struggled on the road. They, they've been really good at home. Uh, and in that game, Utah kind of starts off a little better, builds the lead. Um, but as you said, Beeves rush for, for 260, I think it was. They have a blocked punt, and Devin Lloyd gets ejected. Um, that kind of, you know, those two games are really interesting to me because I think the question for me about Utah always has been how do they handle the hardest opponents on their schedule? Um, they've made quick work of, of teams that have struggled in the South for years now. Um, and yeah, what did what do you feel like you learned from those two games specifically? Do you feel like that second half Arizona State team team versus Arizona State is the real Utah, uh, or do you feel like that concept even kind of exists for this Utah team? Um, and how do you feel about this team's ability to match up in in some of their more difficult games? Yeah, so like I think. It's been a question for a while, and 2019 was like a great case study for it of, you know, does Utah have a big game problem? And right. I think it's like the answer to that is yes and no, because, um, uh, let's see, just totally lost my train of thought. But uh, at the beginning of the 
you know, Pac-12 era, Utah came into the, uh, the Pac-12 as a group of five program. And while Utah was maybe the best group of five program in the country when they came in, or if not the best, you know, they were like right up there with Boise and TCU. Mm-hmm. It's still a group of five program. And that led to us missing two bowl games in our first three years. And uh, even for a while after that, we were recruiting in the basement of the conference. But we've really picked up recruiting a lot since then. Uh, like our last four years, I think we've broken our uh, best class ever record in consecutive years running. And gotcha. this year, I think I think this year... The class size might not be as big, but average player rating is supposed to be at least as good. Um, mm-hmm. And so the talent gap is a lot smaller than it used to be. Like uh, in terms of the team talent composite, uh, in terms of the team talent composite, this team is like right there with Arizona State and UCLA, which is not something we could say in years past. Um, and I think that matters a lot. So, like, you know, the struggles that uh, early Utah teams had against the top of the conference are just hard to apply to current-day Utah because current-day Utah is playing with a much smaller talent gap. Although that isn't to say the talent gap isn't there because obviously it is. Uh, and I think, you know, it moves on to the next thing. Like with, with 2019, uh, the reason we lost to USC that year was because uh, – Julian Blackman was still new to playing safety, and he had his worst game of his career, and he had it against Michael Pittman, who I'm sure y'all remember was fucking yes. awesome, and he torched us. And uh, but the more important reason we lost that game wasn't that like our defense couldn't stop him; it was that our offensive line in 2019 was so bad, just terrible, and y'all know because. I think the biggest reason Oregon beat Utah was because Kayvon Thibodeau was awesome and our offensive line was useless. (laughs) (laughs) And so y'all smacked us. uh, And our offensive line this year looks to be better than it has been since 2016 uh, when we had the entire offensive line get drafted. Um, And I do think offensive line is probably the most you know outside of quarterback the most important position group on the field just because if you have a bad offensive line and you play a talented team you just lose that's just yeah (laughs) that's just what happens I've seen it up close I think that has been Utah's biggest problem in big games now that's not to say that there haven't been other problems but I think that is where our big like our biggest gap has been our offensive line versus the front sevens of the best teams in the conference and it should be a little better this year. And uh, I think we've seen that sort of, like against Arizona State, our offensive line held up great. Like they did their job wonderfully and were a big part of us uh, scoring 28 unanswered and winning that game. Yeah, that makes sense. So, yeah, I mean, you mentioned Kayvon. I think that's the obvious thing from the last time these two teams played is, Oregon fans remember that as kind of a coming out party for him. He has the block pun. He has a few sacks to close out the game. Um, do you feel like Utah's kind of addressed that, though? I know there's also potentially some injuries going on in the Utah O-line, um, and Whittingham's been, been quiet about that, it sounds like. But how do you feel about Utah's ability to kind of contain 
not only Kayvon, but the rest of Oregon's pass rush as well, which I think is, is maybe better than it was in 2019. I am skeptical. <laughs> like, I'll be picking I'll be picking Oregon to win against Utah, and it will be 100% because, well, not 100%, there are obviously other factors, but, like, the biggest thing that makes me think Oregon's still going to do this, you know, is that Kayvon Thibodeau is spectacular, and, uh, you know, the rest of that line is still talented. But uh, Utah's D-line, I mean, <laughs> Utah's offensive line has, uh, they've been really good, but I still remember, you know, early in the season, it was a different offensive line, like a bunch of guys playing in different spots. But yeah. they still were, like, shockingly bad, and I'm worried that might poke its head out again. And right. uh, this, uh, just who's the best uh, front seven that Utah's played since the offensive line got figured out? Like, on paper, USC should be good. Drake Jackson and Thule, I can't say his last name off the top of my head. <laughs> no, right. I know it starts with a T, but... Uh, like, on paper, they should be good, but USC has been a disaster this year, so I don't want to, like, count that as a win for the offensive line and then get blindsided later when we find out, oh, nope, that was just fake. And then against Arizona State, the offensive line did a great job uh, protecting Cam Rising in the second half. But uh, at the same time, Arizona State's not looked good since we played them, and so I'm still, I'm still skeptical about what the offensive line can do in pass protection in run blocking i am much less skeptical though because mm-hmm. ucla like i think ucla's run defense was maybe a little overrated when we went to play them uh but at the same time like we rushed for 390 yards on ucla uh yeah. absolutely torched them like tavion thomas was running through grand canyons and i right. do think that that is something that i can trust because you know, Kayvon Thibodeau is the best pass rusher in the country. He is elite, elite, elite at that. He is not elite at defending the run. Uh, like, I think he gets unfairly slandered for that sometimes. Like, he's not as bad. Like, I don't think he's bad at defending the run. I just don't think he's especially good at it. And I think that might be where Utah uh, can, cre- can create an edge there. Um... And yeah, like the offensive line, I think for me is just, we will see. It's it's TBD until we play Kayvon Thibodeau and the rest of that front seven. Although uh, yeah. you did mention injuries uh, with those. So I was listening to y'all's uh, preview, and I think Charlie said uh, our starting center, Paul Miley, is going to be out because he was, uh, he was with crutches. Uh, he's not actually our starting center. He's been starting the last few weeks, and he's done a good job. But that's because uh, our left guard, man, I'm forgetting where everyone's playing right now. I don't know why. But Keaton Bills, uh, another (laughs) offensive lineman for us. He's interior. I can't remember which side of the line he plays on because I guess I'm just fried right now. But uh, Keaton Bills got injured. And so Nick Ford, who is our regular starting center, had to slide over to cover for that. And then Miley went in. Gotcha. Gotcha. I'm think I I still think that our best offensive line is the one with Bill starting instead of Miley, because Ford is just a much better center than Miley is. Like, Miley's a good run blocker, and I like having him in, but he also was prone to bad snaps, whereas Ford is 
good at them. Like my right. late, at least four times per game, I swear he was just launching them. <laughs> so Cam Rising had to fully extend to catch the ball, and I think that mm-hmm. bit us in the ass against Stanford. Well, I guess it didn't matter because we killed Stanford, but. <laughs> we did get a turnover from those, and if he was starting yeah. this week, I would be almost certain that Oregon would get a turnover off a bad snap. But uh, with Bills, I'm a little more confident in them to just keep it tight. Uh, yeah, that's interesting for sure. Um, you also talked about the run game. Uh, Tavion Thomas obviously has been a big breakout player. He missed the Arizona game, but it sounds like he's gonna be back for this one, um, and. Pledger, Bernard, also good backs for Utah. Uh, in general, Utah's had a really efficient run game this whole year. Um, and I think that, personally, I feel like that's a big recipe for them to win this game uh, is if they can establish the run on Oregon because I think that if they drop into passing situations too often, that's when the pass rush really gets going. Um, but at the same time, I'll say that Oregon's run defense uh, has been up and down in this this year, but I think that probably Oregon's two best performances uh, against the run have came in the two biggest games. Against Ohio State, it was 128 uh, on 4.1 per carry, and against UCLA, it was only 45 rushing yards on 2.4 per carry. Um, do you agree that, that establishing the run is, is – kind of necessary for a Utah win or do you think that there's another route there most of the time I absolutely hate the term establishing the run as it pertains to <laughs> Utah because establishing the run led to us losing BYU and uh and San Diego State just because the run game wasn't there because they were stacking the box and so we had to take shots to what well, we I thought we had to take shots to win and you know we didn't take shots mm-hmm. we didn't win but uh in this game against a pass rush like Oregon's I definitely agree with you uh if Utah can't run the ball Oregon will win and win comfortably but yeah I think Utah will have like I don't think Utah will have the kind of success it had against uh UCLA and Stanford because while statistically UCLA was really good against the run I, I like you know I, I'm I'm scared of Oregon's players significantly more than I am of UCLA's players. Yeah. Uh, so I think Utah will be able to move the ball well enough, but you know that is another thing that's like an unknown because Oregon, the variance between when they're playing a big game and when they're playing like <laughs> Stanford, you know, is just so big. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so I don't know like. I don't know if I'm a little bit selling Oregon short there. It's it's scary. The other yeah, thing totally. I will say, though, uh, if Utah can't establish the run, I'm hopeful that they can maybe open it up a little bit more with the tight ends because right. uh, while Utah's receivers are meh, you know, like I don't think they're bad, mm-hmm. but they're by no means spectacular. Utah has the best tight end room in the conference, and it's not close, and I think it's one of the best in the country. Uh, three really, really good tight ends in uh, Kincaid, Keithy, and Fotheringham. And uh, yeah. Kincaid and Keithy are both fantastic pass catchers, and Fotheringham is you know, just like a good pass catcher, but he's a great blocker. And so like, how, how has Oregon done you know, on the season against tight ends? 
have they handled those? Yeah, I think that that is a potential um, potential area of struggle. Oregon's starting nickel uh, is out, Bennett Williams. So you have Jamal Hill sliding in there, and he's been up and down. Um, I think that it was a good performance overall in Columbus against the tight end. Um, mm-hmm. Ruckert there is one of the better tight ends in the country, uh, and we held him uh, you know, to a pretty low yardage number. Um, but in general, I mean, you, you look at the Stanford game, um, they're not using tight ends maybe as much as they used to, uh, but still that profile of those big receivers is kind of mm-hmm. similar to what you might see from a tight end. Uh, and I think that that, that is something that, um, you know, presents an issue. I think, yeah, you can have really talented corners, but at the same time, um, sometimes it is a matchup problem, even if a guy's a high four star and you throw out a three-star, but he has, you know, half a foot on him or more, uh, that can still present a problem. Um, you mentioned the tight ends. Uh, Britton Covey's the other guy in the past game that I think Oregon fans might know. Um, but, yeah, I think the tight ends is, is probably the right answer in terms of what could really threaten Oregon there. Um Personally, I mean, you talked about the receivers a little bit. I'm not overly scared of the matchups that any of those guys mm-hmm. present. Uh, do you feel any differently about that? Uh, not not particularly. Like, I really like Devon Vele, who I think has emerged as Utah's number one, like, you know, your normal number one receiver kind of a thing. Like, mm-hmm. you know, Covey's a slot receiver, whereas Vele's an outside right. receiver. Uh, he's he's been very good for us this year he's made some great catches and he can get separation but uh at the same time Oregon's a very talented team you know and I don't think right. he's going to like don't like he will beat Oregon only if the run game is beating Oregon you know like if Utah yeah. is running on Oregon that's when you got to be afraid of Vele getting hit for like a 40 yard pass right but outside of that I think you're a little bit safer because while he is, I think, very good, he mean, I mean, like, he can be stopped pretty easily, you know? Right. Um, let's shift to defense a bit. Um, you mentioned Devin Lloyd, obviously, as the headliner. Also, Nephi Sula, linebacker. Like you said, that that's what I see as the strength of the Utah team. Um, since, obviously, we had, we had two Oregon fans grace the No Truck Stops podcast, they kind of embarrassed us by not knowing who <laughs> Devin Lloyd was. Um, so can you do some education here? One, just who is Devin Lloyd? And two, tell us a little more about, you know, what makes him such a special player. All right. So uh, Devin Lloyd is, you know, he's a senior linebacker on Utah's defense. Uh, he's been around since 2017 yeah uh he got his start in 2019 like that was his first year starting he was very good then he actually only got that start because uh Manny Bowen a transfer from Penn State who was slated to start uh ended up leaving the program for a business opportunity I'm not sure what that (laughs) business opportunity was but there were a lot of like multi-level marketing jokes (laughs) but um uh Devin Lloyd basically since 2019 has just been really good he improved a ton last year like last year he was full stop our best player uh he's just like he's everything you could want 
in a modern linebacker. He mm-hmm. he's like he's very athletic and he's he's long, and so he right. can cover. But at the same time, he's just an excellent pass rusher. Uh, even more recently, Utah's played some downs where they just lined him up at defensive end, like put him on the mm-hmm. edge, like. Utah plays a four two or a four three, uh, you know, front. Uh, right. And there was one, like there have been a few plays where they've just lined up Devin Lloyd on the line just to give the defense a different look, and like he still succeeds there despite you know he's still smaller than uh, a left tackle, obviously because he's he's a linebacker, but he just he does everything and he does it all at such a high level that like. He's not like those tackle merchants, kind of like you know Ben Brickerbin was at uh, at UW. He's not yeah, that kind that of Pac-12 sense. defensive player of the year. Like he's gonna win it because he's awesome, and like maybe he won't win it. I think he probably will just because Kayvon missed that time, and statistically, uh, statistically Devin Lloyd's got better stats, and obviously right. stats aren't everything, but but I you know I think Lloyd's gonna win it because of that. Right. Uh, he does everything at a high level, and it's not just like he's not just considered to be a good college player. I'm pretty sure he is like consensus linebacker one among NFL draft Twitter. Like McShea yeah. had him at number eleven on his big board recently. I think Kuiper had him in the same spot. I think the draft yeah. network had him at like sixteen. He's just he's a very very good player. Like I think in this game, Kayvon Thibodeau is the best player uh, because. What he can do is just so spectacular and difficult to stop, you know, and game breaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Devin Lloyd is the second best player in this game. I think. I think those two are a tier above everybody else. Would you Would you agree yeah. with that? Yeah, I think that's probably true. Um, Oregon has a few other guys on defense. I think Noah Sewell, obviously, um, he's an animal, uh, and just on a single play, um, he can you know he can do some things that look kind of like a Devin Lloyd or Kayvon Thibodeau does just like really pop off the screen, but he's a bit less consistent maybe. Um, and mm-hmm. still probably a year away from that, but he could be a first round guy, uh, down the road potentially. Um, Mikhail Wright's a really good corner for Oregon, but I don't think he he's, I think he's probably a step below those two guys as well. So I, I think that's a fair assessment overall. Yeah. I think if Utah's going to win, it's going to be because, you know, as we talked about the things on offense that Utah needs to do to, and take advantage of, and uh, on defense, Devin Lloyd is going to have to make Anthony Brown's life hell. Like, <laughs> right. Devin Lloyd's going to have to play like he has been, maybe have plays like against Stanford. You know, game was over at this point. It was in the second half. But uh, Utah had Stanford pinned back, like, basically on the goal line. And... Uh, Jack West threw a ball. I think it was Jack West. It might have been Sanders in at that time. But quarterback threw a ball, and Devin Lloyd just made one of the most athletic plays I've ever seen where he just fully extends, catches the ball, and rolls into the end zone. Like He just does things like that on a weekly basis, and maybe it's not always interceptions, but he has plays like that where he just wrecks an offense, uh, and Utah's going to need him to do that to Anthony Brown and get in Anthony Brown's face so that – so that we get to play bad Anthony Brown, you know, because I, I feel like there's a big difference between between good Anthony Brown and bad Anthony <laughs> Brown. Like against Ohio yeah. State, maybe his completion percentage wasn't great, but I thought that was good Anthony Brown. 
because he was making yeah. good decisions, even if he was still inaccurate and not, you know, he, like he wasn't making Oregon better, but he wasn't making them that much worse. And yeah. Utah needs to make him make Oregon worse. Yep, I think uh, that's definitely a good point. Uh, I think that's one misconception that some people have about Anthony Brown is just that he's always terrible. Um, and that's not really the case. It, like you said, it's kind of been he's more inconsistent than anything. Um, he's never elite. You know, he's, he's never what Justin Herbert mm-hmm. was, but he's had good games. Uh, the Colorado game was good. The Wazoo game was good. Um, the Ohio State game obviously stands out. Uh, and on the other hand, he's had games where he's played Oregon into really tough positions versus Stanford, obviously, versus Cal, uh, versus UW, even, uh, given, even given the, the conditions were not ideal for a quarterback, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, more on the Utah defense, uh, a few other guys that stood out to me, and you can kind of add to this. Um, uh, Mike Micah Tafua, is that how you say it? His name is pronounced um, is uh, Mika Tafua. Just <laughs> Mika Tafua. Okay. Um, yeah, there you go. <laughs> and he, he's a pretty good defensive lineman, it seems like. Uh, maybe their best mm-hmm. piece up there. Um, and then Clark Phillips is a guy who, who I think leads the defense in snaps. I saw via PFF. Uh, Oregon fans will know him because he was someone who Oregon was kind of involved in that recruitment. Um, and he's a really highly rated corner. I think the highest rated player on Utah's roster overall. Um, who else kind of stands out for you on the defense other than, other than those guys. And then obviously Nephi and Devin Lloyd. Yeah. So like, as you said, uh, Mika Tafula, I think he leads the conference in sacks right now. Uh, mm. Yeah, he's been very, very effective rushing the passer. He's great at that. Um, and Clark Phillips has been, like, he's been very good. He's he plays uh, outside corner right now for Utah, and I think going forward, he he projects more as a as a slot corner because he's he's not tall. But yeah. uh, he's very good, and like Drake London had an awesome game against Utah, but. He stopped getting like explosive plays once we put Clark Phillips on him, and so I think Clark Phillips is a weapon we can use defensively. But aside from the guys you mentioned, uh, the guys that I hope have big games for Utah, there's Vontae Davis, uh, senior safety, who has been injured a lot this year, and I'm not sure if he's going to play against Oregon just because he's missed so much time, and one of his mm-hmm. hands is a club right now. But uh, mm-hmm. he's we a very smart player. Yeah. <laughs> He's a very smart player, and he just makes plays at uh, at nice times. The other safeties are all freshmen. <laughs> uh, there's Cole Bishop, Cam Latu, and uh, someone else that I'm just blanking on. But those two mostly, uh, well, I guess that's when Brandon McKinney's injured. That's who I'm forgetting. Brandon McKinney, uh, UW transfer, who is, uh, he didn't play a lot at UW, but he's been solid for us this year. He's got great speed. And uh, he's a great open field tackler. And so yeah. he's been a big part of Utah not allowing a ton of explosive plays this year. I feel like uh, we've done a good job of keeping teams in front of us. You know, maybe a little bend but don't break. But, yeah, you know, there's not been a ton of big plays, and I think he's been a big part of that. But in terms of, like, guys who might make really big plays against Oregon that I haven't mentioned, uh, there's three, and they're all on the defensive line, or I guess four, because the defensive line gets rotated a lot, but it's really, really young. 
younger than Mm -hmm. Utah defensive lines usually are. And so they're just not that big yet, you know, not that strong. Right. Yeah. Like one of them, the first guy I'm going to mention, Junior Tafuna, uh, he was a linebacker coming out of high school. And he has put on a ton of weight just in like a year. And this is his first year playing defensive tackle. And he's made some really big plays for us. But at the same time, sometimes he just doesn't really understand how to defend the run. He can be kind of hit and miss. Like he's made huge plays, like uh, forced fumbles and recovered fumbles. Like if Utah beats Oregon, I would not be surprised if it had a lot to do with Tafuna and Pututau who is another Utah uh, tackle coming up the middle and just forcing Anthony Brown to make throws on the run. Yeah. Uh, and then there's two freshman defensive ends who rotate uh, between each other, Van Fillinger and Xavier Carlton. Uh, Carlton is a little bit better in run, uh, run defense, but uh, Fillinger is a really, really good pass rusher. Like, going forward, he's going to be, like, the next Mika Tafua or Bradley Anai or Nate Orchard, you know, all the all the Utah players who led the conference in sacks. Uh, that's kind of what we see Van Fillinger as, and I could totally see him having a big game because he's talented. Uh, he was a commit to Texas, uh, but he flipped on signing day to Utah. And so, yeah, mm. those guys... I think those guys need to have good games if Utah's going to slow Oregon down a lot. Yeah, gotcha. That makes sense. Um, I think you said this earlier, but this was one of my questions. Do you feel more confident about Utah's ability to in pass defense or run defense going into this game, as given what, what Oregon presents, obviously, with Anthony Brown and Travis Dye? It's mm-hmm. you know, a bit of a um, – those the run game for Oregon, obviously, is better. Yeah. In uh, even like let's, I'm trying to think of a team that Utah's played with a better pass offense than rush offense, but I can't come up with one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like the closest is Arizona State, but their running backs are awesome, and so I. But yeah, there, Utah's, there aren't that Utah's many pass good quarterbacks defense. in this league in general. So mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, uh, Utah's pass defense is I think significantly better than the run defenses because while the line I think can kind of get beat past block like they just don't get off their blocks very well and so it leaves the linebackers and secondary to have to do almost everything you know mm-hmm. in terms of run defense yeah. like they have to they have to be there every single time because the defensive line is usually just taking up blockers uh i'm much more scared of oregon's uh of Oregon's run game because you know they've had massive weeks these last few weeks whereas Anthony Brown uh does not scare me at all like (laughs) if Anthony Brown throws 20 times in this game I will be so happy that he threw that many times you know like I want him thrown as much as possible because I think Utah has a good pass rush like I think the two conference leaders in sacks are Tafua and then Devin Lloyd at number two and the secondary, while it is young, is talented, and I have I have faith in them to do a job. Like they might make you know freshman mistakes, but they're also not going to get torched just because they're not good enough. You know, like if we can yeah. force Oregon to pass, if we can force Oregon to pass, I think we'll win just straight up. That's the most important aspect of this game for me is Utah 
stopping Oregon's run game. Like, if Utah yeah. runs and stops the run, they'll win comfortably. But it is one thing to say that and quite another to actually get it done. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, one thing that worries me a lot about this matchup for Oregon um, is is getting behind the sticks, whether that's with the sacks um, that you talk mm-hmm. about or, or even just the home field advantage in Utah. Um you know, get a get you get a false start penalty or move back, um, and that hurts Oregon's offense uh, as much as any offense I've ever seen. Really, um, this yeah. team drives are killed based on any type of uh, play that gets you behind the sticks. Any type of negative play completely kills Oregon's offense um, because it's so run dependent, uh, and because on on third and long we've just shown almost no ability to convert uh you know long gains through the air mm-hmm. um yeah so that that's that's similar to what you said i think that's a the recipe for for utah do you feel like home field's going to be a big thing in this game does that make you feel a lot more confident um because it's kind of dual-sided for me i think utah is one of the best home advantages in the country from fans uh or at least but also it seems like the team really feeds off that and that's shown in their home and away splits uh but on the other side i think oregon's pretty good at at traveling too so how do you feel about home fields effect on this yeah i mean like oregon they they won in columbus that's very impressive but at the same time utah has been so good at home i think that really helps the young guys you know it's much easier to play Mm -hmm. at uh home on and much easier to play at home rather than on the road uh especially for a defense um, I guess it doesn't really matter, but <laughs> you know, there's challenges for both, but, uh, the defense performs much better at home when they've got the crowd on their side, making things hard for the other offense. Like, I think the last time Utah lost a game at Rice Eccles with fans was, uh, Washington in 2018. And, yeah. uh, yeah, you know, so it's, it's been a while. Right. The home field advantage will definitely, will definitely help. Utah like I'd be surprised if there weren't false starts on Oregon and uh that'll really help because you know getting Oregon behind the sticks like you said forcing Anthony Brown to throw is how you stop Oregon from scoring uh yeah I'm just oh one thing about Anthony Brown that uh I think is worth mentioning Anthony Brown has shown an ability to make throws longer than 15 yards like mm-hmm. he has done it the problem yep. for me is like it's only happened against really bad secondaries and on the one hand i know that his arm can make the throw but like maybe he's just scared to do it against better teams and that makes me a little bit more confident uh yeah th- yeah 100 you're 100 percent right there he his his arm is capable of doing it um in, in certain situations, one, it's not consistent, and two, like you said, I, I don't know if it's a play calling or it's a confidence thing that's been widely debated from Oregon fans, um, kind of more generally just about, you know, what is the, what is the issue here? Um, but you're 100% right that against the good teams, when, you need, when we've needed long gains through the air, we haven't been able to get them. Um, 
and a lot of times we just haven't thrown them has been the frustrating thing. <laughs> Not that mm-hmm. it's been an yeah. inaccurate ball, but that it's a check down to Travis Dye on third and 15, and he gets five mm-hmm. yards. Uh, and so that's As a been, Utah that's fan, really I know the feeling. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. I think we can pretty much wrap this up. Um, unless you have any other questions about Oregon or, or a guy that you feel like you need to mention about Utah. Uh, any other big preview things you feel like we needed to hit on? Um, mostly, yeah, I'm, I'm, I've got really nothing else to say other than, you know, I do think for some reason whoever wins this game, I feel like we'll do it by like two scores. I have no idea yeah. why I feel that way. I think part of it has to do with just the Mario tax. Like if it's a close game, Mario will find a way to sabotage Oregon. Like, you know, and maybe they'll overcome it, but maybe they won't. Also, Utah special teams, we didn't mention those, are right. dreadful. Worst in the conference. So bad. We're lucky it didn't cost us against Arizona State because they almost blocked some punts. Uh, and if that doesn't change, like, Oregon would be, it would be malpractice to not send everybody after every Utah punt. And conversely, I think Utah's going to end up going for it a lot uh, on Saturday because you can't trust the punt team. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm glad you brought that up too. Um, all right, last last kind of just to wrap this up, what, what point range do you feel like this game is going to be played in? Um, and how do you feel about Utah's chances? Give, give a score prediction if you want to. Um, just kind of last thoughts on it. So I'm going to go with Oregon to win, like I said, mostly because of Kayvon Thibodeau and what I think he could do to our offense, you know, even just him on his own. He's so good that uh, you might just kill Cam Rising. (laughs) But uh, I'll go Oregon 38, Utah 28. Uh, I think Oregon will get – either another possession or even a touchdown straight from Utah gifting it to them on special teams. And uh, I, th- I just don't trust Utah's run defense right now. Like, after what happened against Oregon State, I just I, – I'm out of trust <laughs> for the run defense. Yeah. And I think Oregon is going to succeed there. And so Anthony Brown's limitations just aren't going to mean as much. So they'll be able to move the ball, whereas Utah is just going to be – in trouble with Kayvon Thibodeau. Yeah, I have I have a similar prediction. I had Oregon 35-24. Um, but I kind of agree with what you said, that I think if, if this thing goes wrong, I kind of expect uh, – either way, I expect it to be a game where someone kind of by the second half uh, or mid-third quarter kind of has established an arm's-length lead by, you know, 10 or 14 points, and there's a mm-hmm. bit of a – push and pull there but i don't think he'll be trading leads deep into this game whichever way it is yeah uh, and i think that's just how you know, utah games have gone this year too yeah yeah um and and in general it seems like oregon's entire philosophy uh is built to win games you know right in our two point ranges mid 30s to mid 20s <laughs> that's kind of mm-hmm. how this yeah. is built uh no matter who you're playing really whether it's cal or or ohio state that's pretty much the yeah. goal. 
Um, all right, cool. Well, well, I think that pretty much wraps up our preview of this game. Um, now we can move on to uh, kind of the the real reason that you're on the podcast, I think, um, <laughs> and, and more of a casual conversation just about where Oregon's at, about Cristobal, his offensive philosophy, um, his ability to coach and stuff. Um, I'll just start by saying I think um, I have some beef with with some people, some Pac-12 fans' characterization of Crystal Ball, um, and I think you're you're not as big of an offender as as Carlos is, uh, who just calls yeah. him Jim Mora and, and talks about clock, clock management and and that sort of stuff. Um, but where do you want to start with this? So with Crystal Ball, I think. For me, like, there's a top-tier conference. There's three good coaches in the Pac-12, in my mind. Uh, Cristobal Whittingham and Jonathan Smith. I think at the top, it's them, and then it's everybody else. Yeah, I like uh, that. If I, ha- like, I think Cristobal, like, if I had a program capable of winning a national championship, Cristobal is the one I choose out of those coaches because mm-hmm. he, I trust him most of the time to make hires. Like, Moorhead was a really good hire and the position yeah. coaches on Oregon, they do a good job, especially recruiting. And, uh, and you know, that's obviously the thing he does that sets him apart from everybody else. He's an elite recruiter. Very few coaches in the country do it like he does. And uh, that makes up for a lot of mistakes. Like, I do think his game management skills are putrid. They're terrible. Like, they lost to Stanford because of Mario Cristobal. They should have lost to Cal because of Mario Cristobal. Uh, like, I bet their post-win, post-game win expectancy was, you know, really good in both of those games. But, like, if uh, Chase Garbers doesn't miss open guys in the end zone three times in that Cal-Oregon game, uh, you know, it's a very different season for Oregon. And I think a lot of that is on Mario. And also, he's really good at getting... He's really good at getting Oregon up for, like, the big games, you know, like Ohio State and Columbus. Yeah. But they consistently underperform against bad teams. Like, you know, they didn't go to the playoff in 2019 because of what they did against uh, Arizona State. And this year they're not undefeated because of just that absolute absolute egg they laid against Stanford. Um, yeah, I, I think Mario is a good coach. I don't think he's on, like, that elite tier, you know, of, like, Nick Saban, Dabo Sweeney, Kirby Smart, Lincoln Riley, Ryan Day. Like, I'd take all those guys above Mario in a heartbeat. Yeah, I think that, um, I mean, those, you know, those guys have proven a lot. Um, and and so I, I, I think that it's it's tough to necessarily argue that Mario's over them right now. Um but I think for me, what I look at is is one uh, recruiting matters more than anything to me, and and I personally I agree believe with that. that Chris, yeah, I know you you do. Some people don't. Uh, I'm I'm glad that yeah. you do agree with that. Um, I think that I mean, Chris Wall is absolutely elite in that level. Um, personally, I think he's one of the best recruiters in the country. I think you could put him in the top five of recruiting uh, nationally, and I think that. Uh, I say that especially because of how much success he's had at Oregon without making a playoff. Um, I think, you know, I just kind of separate those two things. If he had the resume, like you look at Nick Saban, for instance, he's obviously Mm -hmm. a great recruiter, but 
it's not that hard to do it either because he's earned so much on the field. Um, yeah. That, you know, he, he can put down the rings. He can put down how many people he's had drafted in the NFL. Uh, so when you're that elite of a coach, sometimes you can look like a really good recruiter. Um, and and it, the results are all the same, so it doesn't matter. But but if you give me, you know, Cristobal uh, and I can assign any resume to a guy, I think Cristobal is the guy I trust most to just win a recruiting battle um, in the country, maybe as a head coach. Um, I know that's that's kind of a big statement, but I just think he's that good. Um, and he's mm-hmm. had some huge recruiting wins at Oregon. Um, uh, but I think, you know, the, the criticism of him playing games close against not great teams is is fair. Um, obviously, it, it hasn't been a great season in terms of that this year. But I also think sometimes people put themselves in, you know, twist things up so much and look at, oh, what could have happened if this had broken this way or that way. Uh, and ultimately, it's like we're in year four and he's he's has two Pac-12 championships already uh and looks like he's poised to go to a third straight New Year's Six Bowl um mm-hmm. and so that's why I think that there there needs to be some more kind of uh appreciation for the fact that that is like impressive in this conference e- even with how down it's been not that many pl- uh, coaches in general get to go to three straight New Year's Six Bowls. Yeah, yeah. Like, Mario has done a great job. Uh, I do think, though, that, like, if Oregon wants to be a playoff team, like a perennial playoff team, a national title contender, which I feel like y'all want to be, uh, yes. and you can be, um, Playoff teams dominate, you know? Uh, yeah. Look at what Georgia's done this year. Look what Alabama usually does uh, when they're that. Look at what Ohio State usually does. They just dominate everyone they play, and maybe they slip up mm-hmm. like once, but I think Oregon slips up a little more often. And kudos, yeah. you know, winning against Cal Close, that's a win is a win, but it is like the fact that it was close is an indicator of problems, I think. And obviously yeah. not big enough problems to, like, make you want to fire him or whatever. But, uh, like, there's room for there's a lot of room for improvement with Mario, I think. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, I think that's – I don't know. That's, that's kind of part of why I am so optimistic about it is because I look at the results of what he's done, and then I agree with some of the criticisms that there is room for improvement in some of those things. Um, I, I also think that there's some mischaracterization about the roster and, and this is something I've, I've gone back and forth with a lot of PAC 12 fans, um, about just how good this Oregon roster is or isn't how close it is to Cristobal's kind of goals. Um, and I think there's some pretty significant misconceptions about like, for, for instance, the narrative around Oregon playing UCLA this year. Uh, people think of Oregon as a recruiting juggernaut, but you look at the guys that UCLA brought out there with DTR and Charbonnet, two borderline five stars, and across the board and their offensive talent, uh, UCLA was the more talented offense by recruiting rankings. Um, and I don't think people recognize that enough. Uh, they they kind of say, well, Cristobal 
if Cristobal was, um, you know, if the cards were even between him and Chip Kelly, he would have gotten ran off the field. But I think people don't realize that right now they are pretty even. Um, even though he's stacked a few top classes, I, I've dug into the specifics of this on this podcast before, even even in my last episode. Um, but you can look at the 2019 commit list for Oregon. That's kind of the first big class that Oregon built. Uh, and straight up, the offensive guys on that um, list, there's only one of them that's contributing right now this year. A bunch of them have transferred out or medically retired. Um, but to go one for eight on signees in that class uh, is, you know, kind of it more than anything it just shows that there's growth for the Oregon offense ahead I think you know I, I agree with you uh that I think it will get better but at the same time like what Mario's goals are are kind of like irrelevant like obviously you want him to have good goals but like the roster not being up to his goals right now is not an excuse you know like it's your job to make sure the roster gets up to your goals, so do it. And uh, with that class, like, medical retirements are just, that's just bad luck, you know? He has no control mm-hmm. over that, so I'm not going to knock yeah. him for that. But transfers, on the other hand, like, missing on signings that way, like, I mean, that is a problem, you know? Like, if you're missing on that many guys in a class, that's a problem. Like, Micah right. Pittman transferring out... uh you know, obviously he hasn't contributed that much uh, for Oregon, so it, it's not going to hurt y'all that much. But the fact that he hasn't been contributing that much when he was, like, what was he as a recruit? I don't remember, but I feel like he was he pretty was, highly touted. Yeah, he was, he was a top 100 guy. Yeah, like, just wasting. Like I, I don't know about wasting because, you know, <laughs> recruiting rankings aren't perfect, you know. A lot of guys don't pan out, mm-hmm. but you got to be a good evaluator too and you know i feel like cristobal yeah. he could have done better than he has yeah and i do expect y'all to get better but i'm not going to give him a full pass for things like that like the fact that oregon doesn't have a quarterback right now that is good is a huge issue and i think ty thompson will be that but he isn't right now and anthony brown isn't good oregon yeah. like not having a guy to play right there is an indictment on uh Cristobal's ability I think well I get I don't know about ability because I don't really doubt that but it's an indictment on the job that he's done yeah I think for me I just my perspective on it is that roster building I think just takes a longer time than some fans realize Um, and I think that that's becoming more and more true as the recruiting calendar stretches out to a longer Mm -hmm. and longer time Um, and I I think you can probably see that in Utah's program. Like you mentioned early in this episode was, you know, Utah's just now after what seven uh, or more than that years in the Pac-12 kind of getting to a Pac-12 caliber of class. Um, I think that, you know, this, this stuff just takes a while and Cristobal kind of, you talk about the quarterback situation um, and I agree in an ideal world, yes, you know, it would be much better to to have your guy in there ready. But I think that people, what, what makes me hopeful, I guess, is, is you have Ty Thompson signed and in the program right now. Uh, you have two guys who are redshirt freshmen after that. Um, 
but the indictment that people want to make on Cristobal, I think is just a little bit um, a step too far because what is the big mistake for him? He came in a, a week before the 2018 cycle, couldn't get a good quarterback in that class. So his first one, you know, he has a full year to recruit and he goes in 2019 and he misses on the quarterback in that cycle. Um, but that's really all that happened because in 2020, he gets two pretty good ones. Um, but I think as a result of the COVID season and just them being only redshirt freshmen now, they're not ready to play. Uh, and Ty Thompson's a true freshman and, and seems like he's not ready to play yet. Um, and so I, that stuff just doesn't make me worry as much about the long-term future there. Um, I think Shuck was, was difficult. Uh, unfortunate that, that that wasn't a better, didn't pan out better. Um, but he handled it as he did. And again, because of how long recruiting cycles are, uh, that just wasn't a recruitment that he took over the full way. Um, you know, it's not a guy that he targeted as a sophomore and, and recruited the full way. And it seems like the guys that he's bringing in now, who he was able to do those things with, namely Ty Thompson, uh, have the makings to be really successful. Yeah, like going forward, I have a lot more faith uh, in Cristobal's ability like I think he will do a very good job at Oregon and I think he will be there for like I don't think Oregon's ever gonna fire Cristobal mm -hmm. uh if he leaves it'll be because a big SEC team lures him away yeah I agree um, with that but at the same time I do have a problem giving him a pass because the transfer portal exists you know like high school isn't the only way to get a quarterback in and uh I mean, Oregon – has Oregon had a lot of success in the portal outside of – I know they haven't outside – I know they haven't had success in the portal at quarterback, although they've brought guys in. They just haven't been good. Have they had success at other spots? Yeah, so I would say um, the few biggest ones on this team are um, – I mean, obviously Anthony Brown is, is a transfer. Um, mm -hmm. Devin Williams is the most successful one. He's a guy in 2018 who was committed to Oregon – goes to USC, doesn't work out there, comes back to Oregon. Um, he's wide receiver one for Oregon right now. Um, mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's it's been, you know, a few safeties, Jordan Happel and, and Bennett Williams are transfer portal guys who are, are contributors. Um, but it hasn't been a heavy dosage of the transfer portal overall, I would say. Uh, you know, there's a sprinkling here and there, but there are a lot of guys that Oregon had connections with also um for instance devin williams obviously was committed he had a he, his cousin plays a corner on the team um mm -hmm. the safety bennett williams was best friends with cyrus habibi Likio, who used to be uh oregon running back so that's what brought him in jordan yeah. apple was at boise state who had a connection with the defensive coordinator avalos who was here uh, so that's why we brought him in in 2020 um and Jawan johnson also was came in earlier from penn state um and, and he was a capable receiver for a year. But it, the transfer portal hasn't been kind of a primary um, mode of talent acquisition, I would say, in comparison to, uh, like, Oregon State, for instance, where it's a pretty decent portion of their recruiting strategy. Mm -hmm. uh, for what it's worth, I do think high school recruiting at a program like Oregon is far more important. Like, yeah, you're going to get better players straight out of high school than you are uh, 
out of the portal. But I think it is also important to be able to fill out roster holes uh, with the portal. It's something yeah. that like I've really appreciated about Utah is they've been very aggressive in getting guys out of the portal, especially this last year. Uh, multiple, multiple quarterbacks from like uh, Jaquindon Jackson and Charlie Brewer, of course, and uh, and then we got four transfer running backs, or not four, three transfer running backs, uh, in Tavion Thomas, T.J. Pledger, and Chris Curry. Uh, I think being able to fill out roster holes in the portal is something that is important, and the fact that Oregon hasn't really done it uh, and hasn't done it at all except for maybe Anthony Brown outside of guys that they've like had connections with prior to them going to other schools is a little bit concerning. And like going forward, I don't expect it to be a big issue, but I do think it is something that like you can knock Mario for. Uh, the fact yeah. that like he hasn't brought in like cuz Oregon has had holes, you know? Like they've had positions that need to be better, notably quarterback this year and last year, and he hasn't done a great job of filling those with the portal. And I think that's something I'd hope he does better, although going forward, it'll probably need to happen less and less as he's at Oregon and has more time to recruit, you know? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, in general, I, I agree with what you said, first off, just that I think when you're at a program like Oregon and you can recruit top 10 classes, basing most of your talent acquisition off of high school players is going to be a more sustainable strategy. Um in terms of quarterback acquisition in the portal, I, I agree that that's the biggest concern. Um, but at the same time, um, who's out there really in the portal? I think that it's kind of used as a uh, – um, it, it's kind of just thrown out there and said, oh, you, you know, you can get someone from the portal. But, I mean, look at what Utah ended up with in Charlie Brewer. Um, and he was probably one of the bigger names that was in the portal. Um and, and Anthony Brown, to be honest, was one of the bigger names that was in the portal when Oregon got him from a quarterback perspective. Uh, they wanted to get Jamie Newman. He ends he ends up at Georgia, uh, and then doesn't even play. goes goes straight to the league from there. Um, I don't know. I mean, I I guess my thing is, I agree with some of the criticisms. Like, yes, it would be better to have a better quarterback right now, um, but when you're projecting forward does that that doesn't worry me that much i guess is what mm -hmm. i'm trying to say and and the point Wait. i've made consistently is is oregon's offense is the least talented it will be over the next three years through maybe the end of the Christopher tenure this year yeah um you know, and again like projecting going forward i have less concerns about Cristobal. it's more just like saying, hey, you fucked up here, you know? Uh, as for quarterbacks, mm -hmm. uh, I think Charlie Brewer would have been a lot better at Oregon than he was at Utah just because in the games he played for Utah, we had zero offensive line, and I think Charlie Brewer can be a very good quarterback when he has an offensive line, but that's irrelevant. Cam Rising was also a transfer. Uh, he was a little bit longer ago, but still, you know, there are guys that, like, you can get that are good. Uh, but, yeah, going forward, I do think Mario – is going to be successful at Oregon, and I don't think they can do better than him. Yes, yeah. nobody's going to recruit Oregon like he does. I mean, obviously it hasn't happened before, you know? Like, he's drastically improved the level of talent that Oregon has. 
and as long as he keeps making good hires, like he's going to be very successful at Oregon. I'm I'm very excited to see. Like, if I wasn't a Utah fan and a fan of a Pac-12 South team, I would be desperate for USC to make a good hire because I want to see a USC that's running at the level that USC should be running at versus Cristobal at Oregon. I think that would just be a very entertaining conference rivalry in recruiting and on the field. Yeah, I think that's a good point um, in in that it, it would be an interesting competition for sure. Uh, I worry about, I mean, one, as, as an Oregon fan, obviously it's kind of a threat to conference supremacy that it is maybe not welcomed. Um, but also I, I just do worry about the West Coast in general, the talent that is out here. Um, particularly mm-hmm. with how much gets plucked nationally. Uh, if you yeah. if, if Oregon's humming and USC gets going, I mean, one, is there enough to split between those two teams talent-wise uh, and really sustain two top ten programs? Um, and two, if even if you say that there is, how many blue chips are left for the rest of the conference? Um yeah i just wonder if uh, i wonder how that affects the conference as a whole because there is a a, just a talent shortage out here in general it feels like i think yeah it just depends on where usc is taking most of those players you know like if usc you know they're back to being usc and they're getting those players from uh like basically they're just stemming the tide of uh like say ohio state and SEC teams that are poaching California or just West Coast recruits in general. Like, yeah. if USC starts taking mostly from those, I think the West can sustain Utah. Not, I don't know why I said Utah. USC and uh, Oregon at the same time. Although I do think, uh, as much as it might uh, hurt to hear as an Oregon fan, I'm sure y'all know, uh, USC if they get back like. If they nail this hire, USC is going to be out recruiting Oregon, I think, relatively quickly. Yeah, I will be interesting to I'll be interested to see it. Um, I think that uh, there's I mean everyone knows USC is a sleeping giant, right? Um, mm-hmm. So I agree with the I, I agree with that premise in general, but I'll I'll also just say. Um, I think that the narrative around USC and how desirable of a job it is and how much it means uh, is can be a little outdated um, because I think a lot of the people who are in you know the media right now talking about the job and those things those are people who were you know around our age really getting into college football right when USC was peaking in the early 2000s. Um, and so they have a certain image of what USC means. Uh, and this is particularly relevant, I think, nationally. Um, it, of course, there are some people directly in L.A. that are always going to be tied to USC. And, and if they get a good coaching hire and it's a competent program, there's a lot of people who will just be go straight there um, directly in L.A. But I think nationally or even in other parts of California where there's a lot of talent or in Arizona, um, or, or the rest of the, you know, Pac-12 states. I think that Oregon's brand for the recruits who are coming out right now honestly means a lot of the same things that people 
felt towards the USC brand and people are still assigning towards them right now, um, that they were flashy, uh, that they were kind of a, a weird thing that was going on on the West Coast, um, that they just had a different brand of football about them. Uh, Oregon kind of embodies that kind of new and exciting brand uh, for people now because of the uniforms and the Nike investment and just because of the success on the field. Um, I mean, you, you look at, you know, who's coming out of the 2022 class. Those people are born in 2004. Um, so when they were seven, they saw Oregon go to a national title and they saw it again when they were uh, 11 or 12. And then, you know, and through that whole span, they saw Oregon competing nationally. Um, so I just wonder if, if the USC brand still means as much to those to recruits as it does mm-hmm. to the media members who actually lived through the Pete Carroll era. I think in terms of brand, like you talked about it, uh, I think USC will, I mean, they don't have Nike, which is a big advantage Oregon has, but at the same time they have LA and, uh, right even just like not even as like a talent base and it's a great talent base but like to recruit someone i think it is a valuable tool to say we are in los angeles is very nice here people like to live here you know mm-hmm. if they can like get in like i think i'm i'm a little torn on who i think i who i think they should hire but uh i think dave aranda would be a really good That's hire for them of. yeah i'm scared of because dave Last year, I was convinced that he was just a defensive coordinator getting paid a head coach salary, kind of like Jimmy Lake, you know? But mm-hmm. uh, this year, Baylor's offense has been good. Like, <laughs> yeah. it has been good. And Dave Aranda is an awesome recruiter. Like, I think if you put him in USC, I think they will, I think it just immediately makes them better because he's a good schematic coach as well. Um, but then he's going to i mean he's going to improve their recruiting a lot and yeah. i think he can rebuild that brand better than most like i think matt campbell would be a terrible decision for usc to hire because yeah i agree we don't know how he recruits i think that's true um i think that there there are some deep problems at usc though um that just make, I mean, I always will say that, yes, if they plug in a really elite coach, they are three years away from being a top 10 program and progressing towards a serious national title contender. Um, but at the same time, I mean, you look at one, they've missed on hires since Pete Carroll. Um, mm-hmm. and, Although and they don't have like bad, a USC but, guy. Like uh, Mike mean? Bone isn't. Mike Bone isn't Lynn Swan or Pat Hayden, you know? Yeah. So okay. I have a little bit yeah. more faith that they'll get away from that, but go on. Yeah, I think, I think one, they've missed on hires, but two, even, even guys that they did have, um, namely like Elaine Kiffin, uh, looks like a good coach now. And, and of course, there are other problems that derailed his time there. Um, but I think that it speaks to just the USC environment has turned into kind of a toxic culture. Um, and of Mm -hmm. course I have my biases here because I, you know, follow Oregon and and they're a rival for us in the South. Uh, but I think that 
it's the type of place where uh, you go there, there's a lot of distractions, uh, and also the fan base is, is pretty toxic. Uh, it turns on people quick. It has a very high level of expectation. Um, and I worry, well, I don't worry, I hope, honestly, that, <laughs> that they'll cycle through even good coaches quickly uh, and the lack of stability there uh, will handcuff them going forward as it has for, again, I mean, we're going on, you know, 15 plus years of this now. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the challenges you described with USC match up uh, similarly to a lot of challenges of uh, an SEC job. Like, right. fan bases that turn on you quickly, they're there. You know, boosters that want to throw their power around, you know, nobody does that like the SEC. Uh, and so I do think that, like, that is something that won't scare off coaches too much just because SEC, SEC jobs are so attractive. And if you think, you know, you're good enough for an SEC job, you think you're good enough for USC. And USC, if you, like, fix those institutional problems, which is not a small thing, but, like, if you do that, I feel like it's so much better than most SEC jobs because there's so much less competition out West for everything. Like you've got a much easier path to the playoff at the very least. Yeah. I think that's totally true. I just think, um, I don't know. Of course, when there's just a coaching vacancy, I think so many people jump to, Oh, well this means they're going to hit on a hire and it, and they're going to be back on their feet in, in three years. Um, and even you talking about Utah like that, and I get why you would say that, um, but who's to say that they don't hire a Matt Campbell and they're not in the same position again four years later? I mean, we don't know, but yeah. even people who have seemed to be good hires, you know, the hit rate in college football in general uh, is just not that great. I mean, you can look at a guy like Scott Frost at Nebraska, even obviously a different job, much harder to win there than it is at USC, but that was widely regarded as a home run hire when it's made and things just don't always work out in college football there are a lot of barriers yeah to success um yeah what else do we have anything else on this crisp wall discourse or you think we we pretty much hit it well i, th- I think we hit it pretty well uh mario's okay, a good, good coach hopefully we'll get better <laughs> yeah I, I think i gotta have um I got to have Carlos on sometime to to walk me through his Jim Mora to Cristobal comparison because that that's the one that really gets me angry. It, it's it's harder to argue with you because I agree with a lot of the <laughs> things that you say. You don't say <laughs> such outlandish things. <laughs> yes. Um, all right. Well, I think that pretty much wraps us up. Um, thank you for coming on, Greg. It was it was awesome yeah, to have you on awesome to me. talk about this big matchup and also about about Cristobal in the Pac-12 for a while. Um, I did the same plug when Carlos was on, but if anyone's still listening after this whole uh, debate, um, please go check out No Truck Stops. It, it is really my favorite Pac-12 podcast, um, and really a lot of why I love it so much is that I think your guys' bits and jokes on there really kind of capture the weird nature of the Pac-12, um, and a lot of people don't get the Pac-12 right, I think, especially nationally. They don't really understand it, uh, and all mm-hmm. of all of your crew does so yeah it's a great listen um go check that out is there anywhere else that uh 
people can find your work, Greg, obviously at Banana Morphs on Twitter. Anything else you do? Nah, just just at Banana Morphs on Twitter and stream No <laughs> Truck Stops. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, appreciate having you on, and, and hopefully we'll do this again in the off season or something. Or maybe before a conference championship matchup. Who knows? Maybe. We'll see. I think that is... I think that is the most likely outcome unless one of Utah or Oregon really fucks up in rivalry week. Although calling Utah Colorado as part of rivalry week is a joke, so never mind. But Yeah, all right. Um thanks for listening to everybody. See you after this big game. Go ducks. <laughs>